Hey everybody, welcome back to the Grey Malkin Lane podcast, the podcast where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1960s. Except not today, this is an issue not from the 1960s, but we'll talk about that in just a minute. Now, in the 1960s, Jean Grey, or Marvel Girl, got very little airtime. She was always the love interest or the girl to flirt with, or even the costume designer for the team. Uh, she Barely an issue goes by without her being called girl or gal or woman or female or wench uh, or the weaker sex. There's always some sort of uh, comment in every issue. Uh, we meet her parents one time in the 60s and she references the fact that she has a sister, but we don't ever see much story content. We got one storyline where she got off, went off to college and had a love interest, but then she's kind of back at the back of the pack all over again. Now, when Chris Claremont took over the book, Jean became one of his most beloved characters. He powered her up. He gave her a ton of emotion and history and passion and character and made her, frankly, the most powerful on the team. Uh, we are going to review an issue today that takes us away from the 60s run, just so that we can give Jean Grey a little bit of love. And we're going to step back into an older, obscure issue uh, written by Chris Claremont that reveals Jean's origin for the first time. And it's from an issue of, it's an anthology series called Bizarre Adventures. Uh, each issue here had more than one story in it. This one had one Jean Grey story, and then it had an Iceman and a Nightcrawler story to follow. We're only going to be reviewing the Jean Grey story in our podcast today. So the, uh, the issue assigned today is Bizarre Adventures number 27. It's a gorgeous book with black and white John and uh, John Buscema pencils with Klaus Janssen on inks, uh, and it's going to be a lot of fun. So this this issue comes from July 1981. We are thrilled to have two new guests here on the podcast. Uh, now Derek Kungsen is here. I have gotten to know Derek uh, through Twitter over the last few months, and we've been chatting a lot. Derek, it's so great to meet you in person over Zoom, but in person. How are you, man? I'm great, thank you. Yeah, thanks for being here. And I am so honored uh, to have the incredible, unique, powerful artist, uh, Maria Wolf here with us. Hi, Maria. Hello. Uh, so let me have you both introduce yourselves. We'll go in the order of Maria and then Derek. Uh, let us know your name, your gender pronouns, where we might know you from. Uh, and then let us know a little bit, uh, or excuse me, the question I have for you as you introduce yourself today is, do you have a grand underwater adventure story? <laughs> Today's comic takes us underwater, so I thought that'd be a fun question. Uh, Maria, do you want to start us off? Sure. Um, well, uh, like you hint, I'm an artist. <laughs> you could see my work. I've worked with uh, various uh, companies uh, from Marvel, DC, Black Mass to Waltz and other small Kickstarters. Um, you know, originally I was more for an interior and artist, but people fell in love with my covers. So I started doing more covers than anything. And right now that's like my favorite thing to do. So <laughs> keep them coming, you know? <laughs> if anybody's seen this, yeah, just uh, come for me. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. I've done uh, my first big thing, I would say, that pe most people remember me is my the Women of Marvel issue where I did my magic cover. That's actually what where the the whole every uh, where my career lifted off was due to that cover. And then after that, it's just been big hit recently. Right now, I think what everybody's looking for is the spider punk one mm -hmm. the issue I just did. So everybody's really I'm excited. I'm going to go try to grab as many as I can of my own cover. <laughs> <laughs> um, but 
like I said, you could see it through my Marvel covers, uh, my my DC. I did it one DC and my other covers, whichever people I work with. But um, okay, well, yeah, there you go. I talked about. It. Uh, do you have a? <laughs> well, what are your what are your pronouns? And do you have? Oh, yes. an, and do you have an underwater adventure story for us? Uh, I go by she, her, and uh, I think you know what? It's crazy. I've always wanted to do like. They're really cool, like uh, scuba diving and all those other things. I never got to do it. I really do. Especially the ones where you get to go, uh, you go inside like a tank and there's like a giant, like eight foot alligator right there. And they put you right by it. I was like, oh, I would love to do that. <laughs> um, but the only thing I can remember, I mean, I've drawn like three, four times. I'm not going to lie to you. Uh, which never got me scared of the water because I've always went back because I really do well swimming a lot too. Surprisingly, you know, that's the first thing I told myself. I was like, I got to learn how to swim just in case I get lost at sea. <laughs> so um, I could swim pretty far too, which most people get surprised. Uh, but the only thing I can remember that like really, really was shocking to me is when I went to Florida one time. Of course, it's always in Florida, right? <laughs> and as a kid, there's a place called the Red, uh, God, the Red Beach or Red Sea, something like that. It, what happens is that the red ore that's inside the sand makes the water pure red. So I remember as a kid, I went in there. I was like, this looks like blood. Like, it's like a bloody sea. And I remember um, when you walk in there, there's no lifeguards. They'll even tell you that there's uh, alligators around that area. So you, you have to be the vigilant one. And there's literally, there was a big glass case with a shotgun that said, in case of emergency, break glass and you shotgun and I was like oh my goodness <laughs> but I remember and this was crazy people were all over the beach like nothing nobody cared I'm over here terrified because I'm like because I was really big into like animal planet and stuff so I know what an alligator can do to you <laughs> rip you limb from limb and the only thing I and you know it's the crazy experience so when we were leaving my sister we were going up these stairs and there's like a like a swampy area around there too that's why they say be careful of the alligators and my little and my little sister accidentally dropped one, one of her sandals so it went underneath this big giant thing and she said go get it and i was like okay so i run down the stairs and i'm going to get this little sandal that's by the swampy area and i'm not lying to you <laughs> I see a little little eyes pop out of the water at a distance, and it's a little baby alligator. And right away, I grabbed that shoe and said, "Nope." <laughs> I ran. I knew. I was like, "Oh, there's a little baby alligator. Just gonna be a big turn. But that's like my water story, I would say, because most of the time it's just, you know, just me swimming. I haven't done anything too crazy. I guess just drown would be my only crazy, you know, underwater story. <laughs> Because I was underwater. <laughs> well, I'm glad you didn't drown. Uh, Derek. Yeah, uh, Dirk Kunskin, uh, he, him. And uh, I'm a novelist, basically. Uh, I have, uh, I've been, I'm the writer of The Quantum Magician and The House of Sticks. And those are both the starts of a couple of series. Uh, uh, I've won the Asimov Award and very, very pleased about that. And um, I live in Canada. And um as far as an underwater adventure, I think I've um, I, I've got some underwater stuff, but like three or four seconds is not an adventure. I don't have anything as, as fun as Maria. Um, but uh, once I was living in Colombia for a while for work, and one Easter we went down to this ecotourism place in the Amazon, and um, we were in these 
you know, traditional dugout canoes and stuff. And uh, I said, are there piranhas in the water? And they're like, yep. And I'm like, you know, would they eat me now? And they're like, I don't know. But I assumed that they would not. So I wanted to be able to brag that I jumped in the water with piranhas. So I did. And so I jumped in and then got out and there were no piranhas biting me at all. But all the same, there's some bragging rights to having been in that water for a couple of seconds, I hope. Will they eat you? Maybe. We're not sure. <laughs> and then my name is Chad Anderson. I use he, him pronouns. I um, I have a shocking number of underwater stories, actually. But the one I'll choose to share, back when I was in high school and still closeted, I uh, was still dating girls at the time. And I took a girl to my senior prom. And I was a really good date, as most gay men are <laughs> when they're dating women. <laughs> You have to compensate somewhere. We had this big elaborate meal. And then we went to a place that taught you indoor scuba diving lessons. And so it was like the wetsuit and the scubas and you're, you're diving down into like this big, I think it was like a 40 foot lake indoors. And we had a really good time. It was a triple date. Well, my day got really sick. Like they pulled her up out of the water too fast. And so she went home and we all got ready for prom and we met at prom. And during our first dance, she vomited all over me. And I took her home. We like didn't even get pictures. <laughs> so it was kind of a lame underwater story, but <laughs> but still a good one. Uh, we uh, we've done some uh, underwater adventures with the kids a few times, um, going out in the ocean and seeing stingrays and dolphins and whales and those types of things. Those are my favorite stories, but. Uh, but there's no vomit, so they're less fun. <laughs> um, I'm a huge fan of both of you. So, Derek, I, uh, I've i had a chance to only read the first book in your Quantum Magician series. You, uh, I've read a lot of uh, sci-fi over the years, and you've created a world that is unique and unlike anything else. Uh, one of the things I appreciated most about your book is uh, it doesn't really take the time to explain things right away. There's a lot of different races and history and time travel and future and thought projection and all these different things. But it took me a good 70 or 80 pages to kind of figure out the language of the land and what was going on. And I really love a story that makes me think and invest to get me in. Uh, now, I know you've, you've said you've written three of four of that particular series. How has it been received so far? Uh, thank you really well. Um, the the first one's been translated into Chinese, Japanese, French. Um, in China, they've flown me over a few times to do some futurism work with them and to be at different conferences. So that's been really, really rewarding. And um, yeah, that's that's the first novel I had to get published. And so it's kind of like my calling card now, uh, even though there are other books in the series. Um, so, so yeah, although I, I do recognize that I didn't make it as easy as I could have for some of the readers because the kind of books I like to read is the ones where I'm also bringing something to the table, my own thinking, and I I wanted to write a book like that. So, uh, but but yeah, if people are into sense of wonder and the the far science stuff of the you know 500 years from now, they'll they'll have a good time. I think I'm just barely realizing I pronounced your last name as Kunkson earlier, and it's Coonskin. And that was a horrible butchering of your name. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> There's been so much worse. <laughs> Normally people ask me how to pronounce it. And I said, if you, you know, horseshoes and hand grenades, if you're that close, it'll be fine. In all of, uh, in all of my preparations, sometimes I flub something as simple as a last name. <laughs> it's so nice to have you here, man. I, uh, we, we've become friends kind of through the podcast and chatting about it, but it's really nice to meet you. Uh, now, Maria, you, uh, you came to my attention a little while back. 
with your magic cover, uh, you did another with Moonstar, uh, and um, and there's been several more. Obviously, we'll talk a little bit about your individual ones. Uh, but I remember just being stunned. I'd never seen a cover like that, uh, which then inspired me to look up your name and look at some of the work that you're doing through your website, which is Art by Maria Wolf. Yes. com is that correct? So uh, everybody check Maria's work out. Tell us a little how you got that first gig at Marvel. Um, that's a funny story because everybody tells me that. You know, to this day, I get people who still message me. How can I get into Marvel? How can you do that? I was like, I don't know. I just got it by luck. <laughs> and uh, I mean, I really, that's really, I'm, you know, that I take it very uh, as a blessing too because. Um, life is good because one day uh, you know i never used my twitter account never at all i remember i had it for and it even states too that i've had it for over like seven years seven eight years just recently i've been using it for the past two years and i said okay let's try it out so then i started putting all my art in there and like getting more involved with the comic books and like you know and luckily people were getting interested in my artwork and then out of nowhere i got this uh, message from twitter um one of the editors, uh, one of my editors named Sarah, she came and she messaged me. She's like, oh yeah, you know, I would love to, for you to do a cover for Marvel. And for, at first I was like, okay, this is a scam. No, Marvel's never gonna message me. <laughs> I didn't even believe you there. And then I remember my sisters, uh, you know, <laughs> and that's the funny thing with young younger people, they're really good about like back background checking and looking up people and like going through their emails and like finding information you've never known about the person because they're going to be like, we're going to make sure this is not a serial killer <laughs> or they're not scammers. And luckily they're like, yeah, she seems legit. I was like, okay. And that was it, you know, and I'm glad I still work with her too, because Sarah, I did another cover with her. I did with um, Echo when she was also in yeah. her Phoenix form too. So I got to work with her again, but that was the biggest opportunity right there. She, you know, she really liked my work. She gave me a bunch of female characters too. And she said, I think you do a really good magic cover. And because it being my first Marvel cover, I said, I have to look really, really good. This has to be like top tier, like the best cover I've ever done in my entire life. And it did, you know, I, I was great. She was a really co-editor. Cool she, uh, I got to learn a lot about being a real professional and like the industry how to work with your editors and uh yeah that's how it all started <laughs> now, is this is this sarah brunstad you're talking about uh, yes it is <laughs> yeah okay yeah we hear we hear some really great things about sarah now i hope it's okay for me to ask this and if it's not please tell me i i don't know quite the right phrasing to use are uh are you uh are, are you are native american i presume yes uh but but also hispanic is that both Yes. Yeah, so, um, and that's the funny, like with the history, because, you know, most people have this idea that, you know, Native Americans or Native people are only from, you know, North America. But if you go through the history, well, there's Natives everywhere, you know? Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course. You can't just say because of North America, there's none in South America and, you know, even lower <laughs> or Central. But I am Native through Mexico. So I'm Puro Pesha. And, uh, you know, I always tell people, I've even gone to indigenous uh, conventions and they're like, wait, what are you? And I'm like, I'll put a picture. And they're like, oh, okay. So where is that? And like, <laughs> you know, that, that's uh, I'm like, that's uh, central Mexico. That, well, that's Mexico, right? So, you know, I got to go over there too, but before COVID, it's about three, four years ago. So I went to where my dad is from and uh, in Michoacan. 
And I went to the island of all where the other indigenous people are too. So I got to go meet my family and, you know, my tribe and stuff. So it's good. It's good to go back to your roots and like uh, represent who they are as well too. So, you know, yeah, the reason, the reason I asked that, we're seeing a lot of initiative from Marvel with the voices issues. Right especially and i've seen your work on the cover of both the communidades uh and the and the uh um the uh oh i want to make sure i get the title right uh the is it legacy for the native american books i think it's called marvel comics legacy and then the the uh communidades for the uh, hispanic or latino stuff right Uh, gorgeous work you did uh white tiger and you've done moonstar and then you recently did a thunderbird uh as well correct Uh, i did thunderbird i did danny moonstar a lot of people were so disappointed because it didn't get to get published but that's because it was like a human error so my other editor is like you know the moment they get a chance they're gonna put that cover back on so i was really, really grateful for that too so uh yeah how do you get the characters assigned or how do you choose the characters you're going to draw? Now, really, they just give them to me. Some They'll give me, my editors will first give me a chance, like, oh, well, what are you interested in? You know, let's get something that you find interesting. They just won't all automatically always give me a character. Those for like, that's the first one for the Marvel Communities. <laughs> Sorry, my mouth is dry. <laughs> you know, uh, my editor gave me a big list of like who I want to work on. There was Ghost Rider. There was, um, oh, who was it? There was Ghost Rider. There was White Tiger. There was somebody else. And right away I took White Tiger because I was like, ooh, I could do a really cool like White Tiger. Like just like, I'm, I'm big into animal suits. So I was like, I can make this really cool tattoo design like work. So, and that came out really nice. So I was very happy with that too. I wanted to do a different design. That's the one thing I will say about Marvel or what my covers have that everybody's been seeing is that if you notice all the characters, I've tweaked them a little bit. So they're slightly different or they pop out a little bit more because I wanted to put, because I've always wanted to be a concept artist. I didn't get to become a concept artist, but in comic books, I could become a concept artist. So I was like, yeah, let's redesign their costumes, make the flow. And usually my editors, when they see that, they like like the little changes I get to do. So yeah, there you go. <laughs> Uh, Derek, are you a fan of Maria's work? Yeah, no, it's, it's I love the amount of detail in it, and I I love the magic cover. It's it's really impressive stuff. I I went through your Twitter feed and uh, and your Instagram feed, and just so much cool stuff there. And your your crazy Hulk with eight arms, that your Doctor Octopus Hulk was so oh, yeah. Into, yeah. <laughs> that was too. I love that one actually. It's uh, somebody pointed out too. So I'm glad like other people can point out like the little things I do. Cause if you notice his body is just still but his arms are the only thing that are moving. Mm-hmm. So I was like, yeah, you know I wanted to do like one of those uh, Japanese like God statues where it's all the arms and everything's just moving in a flow. And there's one thing you'll notice with all my art and I try to make it like a main thing is movement. I, I always believe that like even the smallest line has a meaning and it's moving. The art has to move even if it's still, whether the hair is flowing, whether the lines are moving, it's just moving. So, so it feels alive. And I think that's why a lot of people find it my work interesting because it's just very like in your face. It's alive in its own way. And uh, yeah, and it just gives a cool like tattoo vibe, uh, a nice Japanese style too, uh, or what people tell me. People tell me everything about my art. I'm just like, eh, I just draw- <laughs> I'm just drawing it because I want to. So I always love to hear the side, like, yes, your art represents power and, you know, and the aliveness. I'm like, mm-hmm, 
Mm-hmm. But on, okay. <laughs> on, I was just going to say on that, uh, like they say in writing that the the final creator is the reader. And I think you can say the same thing about, you know, somebody who's looking at a piece of art. Ultimately, they're going to take something out of that and put something into it. And so it, you're right. It's so weird to hear like something you've right. created and then people are inserting new things into it. And you're like, wow. And it really is the consumer is the final creator. Right. That's why I don't say nothing. I was like, mm-hmm, whatever, <laughs> whatever works for you. Or what did I tell? I told somebody, I was like, hey, whatever sells, baby. <laughs> if you like it, I like it too. <laughs> Just buy it. <laughs> oh, you did, you did a, I, uh, I didn't look this one up, but you did a variant for Reptile as well. That's my friend Terry yeah. Blass's series. I, I, I'm remembering Reptile with a bunch of uh, dinosaurs in red kind of running alongside him. Is that? Oh my goodness. That was, uh, oh, okay, because I'm a really big nerd of, like, Jurassic Park. <laughs> That's my childhood, like, for favorite movie. I could watch that. I think I have watched it, like, 40 times or so. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and I'm a big dinosaur fan. And so when they gave me Reptile, too, I was like, oh, oh my inner child just, like, woke up. It's like, oh, dinosaurs? <laughs> <laughs> and that's the funny thing though i'm a big dinosaur fan i don't really draw them i drew them a lot as a kid but as i got older i really draw them so the opportunity to do it again as a child and you could see like it was so fun because i got to go and like oh which dinosaur should i put <gasps> oh let me put a t-rex oh a velociraptor oh let's see this you know and that was and you, and it's funny too because uh, i just send out all my covers to uh inky knuckles my art dealer and that's the one co- cover I couldn't part with. I was like, no, <laughs> I couldn't do it. I was like, I can't sell it. No. And it's a funny thing. I was going to sell it. I It was with the pile. But as I'm putting the pile into the box, I remember I grabbed my cover and I see all the dinosaurs and the nostalgia hit my head. And I was like, nah, I'm not going to sell this. <laughs> but and it's a funny thing because I think it's just the nostalgia, but. I was very, very grateful that, which I'm surprised that Reptile is not an ex, a really popular character because I mean, that's like no, the number one thing for kids, you know? You get this one kid who could turn into dinosaurs. I mean, kids like dinosaurs. I mean, they love animals. That's why like Beast Boy is a really big thing too. You know, the idea of like transforming and, you know, he could turn into like, you know, his head could turn into a T-Rex or a raptor, his arms, you know, he could just transform. And uh, yeah, I just surprised. I hope he gets, he comes back even more. His mini series was great. I was yeah, happy with yeah. that too. I think you'd have to put him on the Avengers or something to get him more exposure. Right. He's always been in weird places. Now, if you take something like, let's use your magic cover as an example. Okay. You have this central figure. You're talking about this movement. She's got her giant sword drawn. She's plummeting downward. Uh, for most people, that is uh, an impressive feat of art. But then you look at that cover and it is layered with demon faces. Just not two or three, but like a couple dozen and the amount of like effort. And then I'm assuming you work with some pretty great colorists as well. Cause they, they kind of mute or do you do, I don't know if you do your own coloring, actually, they kind of mute the background, but then make the front figure figure pop. And that's kind of a theme I notice in a lot of your covers as you do that. So tell us a little bit about your process in designing these incredible backgrounds. And then how long does it take you to finish uh, from start to finish one cover like this? See, I'll get in trouble with this, but <laughs> but in a good way, not in a bad way. <laughs> so usually um, my work, I think that's why I like being a cover artist too, because they give me about three weeks to a month to finish a cover. So I'm not rushing. I'm not stressing myself out. 
um not like if i was like an uh interior artist or you gotta do like a page a day and like yeah 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 boom 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 and yeah i think that's why i step away from interior art because then i had to reduce the detail that i had to put in and i'm a perfectionist at heart it, it's a, just a bad habit that's just how most really artists are the ones who are really crazy are like they're gonna see that one little line that's sticking out and you're like nobody's gonna see that line they're gonna see that one little <laughs> So I could, let's see, if it comes down to, I could get the, from thumbnails to pencils to inks, all of it could be done within four to five days, max. If I'm in a time crunching thing, about three days. You bet you're but I'm going to go as fast as you've ever seen me. Um, but this is consistent work, full-time job kind of level for, for right. multiple days in a row. Of course. That's why, that's why a lot of people were getting, they were suppressing all my covers because I was just throwing out so many covers because it was like one after the other after. It got so bad that Marvel was like, okay, we're going to have to stop you. We don't want you to burn out. So we're going to send somebody to watch over you, <laughs> watch over your deadlines. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> They're having people watch over me. <laughs> but uh, yeah, well, when it comes to, see, like I said, I wanted to be a concept artist. So the idea of like popping out a character or like writing your face, because uh, I do illustration work as well, too. And I always tell people when it comes to the difference between interior work and cover art, well, of course, interior work is inside. And I, I became the stereotype I never thought I would be, uh, where you go into a bookstore and you're like, oh, man, I hope I hope the art that's on the cover is just what's inside, right? You know, judge a book by its cover. You know, they say don't do that. But when it comes to the comic world, well, technically, we judge a book by its cover. <laughs> Because that's the first thing that, you know, we see that appeals to us. And uh, it's funny, too. I never thought I would be that one person because I was that person. It was like, oh, man, I'm not going to read that comic book if that cover is not what, you know, looks inside. And I went to a comic book shop and I heard somebody say, oh, man, I hope the artwork that's on this cover is just as good as, you know, the inside. I was like, oh, no, I've become the stereotype now. <laughs> the statistic in the in cover work. But right. So like I tell well, my mentality is like what I tell people how I do covers is that remember every Wednesday, let's say over a hundred comic books get released, right? And all, have, and all of them have covers. All of them have covered all wonderful artists, top tier, you know, they've been in the industry for years too, you know, cause I'm whenever I see my cover and then I see it next to like a really famous cover artist, I'm just like, you know, you're fighting with that cover artist too, right? But I always tell people, you have to do a cover that appeals to a lot of people because when it hits Wednesday, when all those new cover, comic book covers, not everybody's going to buy every cover. They're only going to buy about, you know, two, maybe five, right? So you got to stick out out of all those hundred comic book covers. Yeah. So I think that's why a lot of people like my covers because the moment you walk into a shop, right away you see my, my cover and it's like staring right at you. It's very presenting. It's very fierce. You know, it's like that one piece of like a, a you go to like a store, you see a tiger just like roaring and you're like, oh man, it's so powerful. <laughs> but yeah, that's how I do my covers. I always tell myself, right, even before I finish a cover, I always tell myself, if I don't say this looks badass, it's not kick-ass or, you know, or I'm like, oh, I'm like stoked about it, then, you know, I'll keep doing it over and over. And I've done it over and over. A lot of those Marvel covers, people don't know that I've literally have repeated cleaning and fixing for like about five, 10 times sure. until it's like, you know, until I say, okay, shut's kids, it could go out, right? <laughs> yeah, your your work, and I mean, when you take 
a, a, a hundred books a week with all different covers and many of them with variant covers. Your yeah. work stands out though. It's unique. It is different. And it pops in such a way who does your colors often, or, or do you have a, a, a series of colors? Right. So one, I'm not a colorist. I'm horrible at digital works, <laughs> but that's how I got a good relationship with my colorist because magic, uh, they gave me, do you know, Daniel Warren? I know of, yeah, I know the name. Yeah, right. Uh, really famous. And, uh, our joke every time I see him is that I stole his colorist because <laughs> Marvel gave me Mike Spicer, who is usually the main colorist for Daniel Warren. And, uh, oh man, when he did that magic cover, I fell in love with it. I was mm-hmm. like, he made it a bubblegum pink. There's bright colors. It was just, you know, something totally different. And he under, and it's funny too, because I've had my art go with other colorists and they always miss like a small detail or they can't see something that I see. And so on that day when Mike had that, and right, you saw all that detail, all those monsters. I'm like, Mike's not going to see any of this. And he saw every single little bit. And I was like, and from that day, I was like, you know, every time Marvel kept telling me, oh, who do you want to be your colorist? And I said, Mike, 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 Mike. I even told, I messaged Mike too. I was like, Mike, as long as you do good by me, I will always get you a job. I will always <laughs> recommend you. I will always hire you. Now, sometimes I'm the bad person because right, I'm running late and I'm like, Mike, I'm so sorry. I know. Can you do this in two days? <laughs> Where and is, then, is he on Twitter? He is on Twitter. He's What's uh, his... Spice Color. Okay. Yeah. In, in Maria's tweets, I noticed that uh, she's constantly congratulating the uh, oh. the colorist oh. and, and his tag is in a lot of her tweets. I'll, I'll make sure to take a closer look. He, yeah, he's good. That I'm looking at the magic cover now that like black and silver, like against the pink background is just stunning. Right. It's really, it's, really great. It's so unique in its own way too. Like I, you know, I never thought somebody could uh, make, and that's the thing. He has a really crazy, awesome way of popping out my life and that's the thing too like a lot of rule of thumb when it comes to like art if you're super detailed then you you need very little color or if you lack the detail then you need a lot of color because it pops out your artwork but mike just puts a good amount of color and it's vibrant i think that's what you see and that's what makes it more stunning so you have all my detail and then mike comes out of nowhere and he's like yeah i'm gonna make this bubblegum pink and like really bright colors and then your eyes are just like so focused uh, if you notice the Thunderbird one, it's like one of my favorites of Mike when it comes to coloring. Because it just reminds me of like a black light kind of like poster to it too. Yeah, with like the moving water on it. Yeah, it's right. gorgeous. Yeah. He gives it a really good vibe to it. So yeah, definitely. I mean, if I make a comic book, I'm hiring him. That's for sure. <laughs> he's my gun. He's going to be my colors too. But yeah, every time I see Daniel, I just go up to him and I whisper like, I stole your colorist. It's mine now. <laughs> Let me ask. Uh, let me ask both of you, and then Derek, I'll have you go first on this one. What is your relationship with the X Men as a fan? Like, what's your origin story with the X Men? So the when I was ten, my mother came back from a vacation and gave me four comic books, and one of them was X Men One Twenty Eight, which was the end of the Proteus saga. Uh, it was Claremont and Byrne, and. Uh, at the time, what was showing up on the stands was already the 150s, like the Cockrum stuff. And so between trades, I got a lot of back issues. And then I started basically buying off the stands with 154. And uh, the X1, like, I 
I was not an Avengers guy. I was not an Iron Man guy. I was not like I was Doctor Strange and X-Men all the way through. And the X-Men was the last comic I was still buying in the mid 90s when I finally stopped collecting for a while. And then I came back to them. But partly why I'm I really love your podcast so much and I love Connors and and I love this new Hickman run is because I tried to read X-Men a few times since I've been back in the last 10 years, but I kept bouncing off because there was no really good, like the lore had gotten so complex that I couldn't get back in. And suddenly the Hickman run was my new entry point. And so I've been reading all of the Hickman stuff now uh, since 2019, basically, and catching up. Yeah, it's a good time to be an X-Men fan. Uh, in a few months, we're going to have uh, a writer by the name of Doug Wolk on. He wrote a book about just the Marvel Universe. And one of the really impressive things in his book is he basically just says there is no wrong way to get through. You start where you start and you take the path that you want. And it may be sporadic. It may be very specific. It may be in order. Uh, but that's the beauty is you get to discover this whole giant universe in whatever path you choose. It can be character specific or franchise specific. It, it just kind of depends on on how you choose to find it. Uh, Maria, what's your connection to the X-Men as a fan? Uh, well, because, you know, I was born in the 1990s, <laughs> 1992s. Um, first, it was the animated series. Of course, as a kid, I saw, oh, man, that was so great, you know, to see all these characters. I was like, wow, who, and my dad's an X-Men fan. So I grew up, you know, my dad had like the figurines, he had the trading cards. My dad was like, a real, his favorite was Wolverine. And because if you've met my, if you ever meet my dad, he's really tiny. So of course the small complex of an angry little man, like. <laughs> 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 so I could see where my dad, you know, even when the movies came out, my dad was upset because he's like, Wolverine's supposed to be smaller and hairier and more aggressive. And there's, like I said, that he was, his fanboyness of like, Wolverine has status and he has to have that status, you know? So, um, so I grew up with the series comic books too. My dad had comic books. I got to read them. Those are really great too. Um, I have a few of the issues that even from when I was a child, don't know which one are, which one are those, but I just remember looking through, because to me, I enjoyed it just for the artwork. Like he's not even reading the story. It was just like, but that's because I'm an artist. So I'm like scanning every page, looking how they're drawing like every muscle in detail. Mm -hmm. um, but I, what I would to say is what really got me into X-Men was this with uh, Joe Mad when he did his, um, oh man, the detail of it. And it was just a different style. Mm -hmm. And I loved his saber tooth. I thought he was really cool because that's one of my favorite X-Men villains is saber tooth. So he's, there you go. My dad has Wolverine. I have saber tooth. It's the end of it. <laughs> Who is, uh, who's both of your X-Men crush? Oh, man. Okay, well, one is Sabretooth, right? Here, it's really, really hard because you go, there's Gambit. I love Beast. Oh, my God. I just like the, the fact that he uses his feet to grab things. I thought that was really unique, too, in that sense. Gambit, of course, that's every woman's crush. You know, it's just a Creo. It's a, it's a little Louisiana <laughs> mademoiselle, right? Um uh, vous <laughs> Mine is a uh, uh, mine is Cannonball. I love a good wholesome oh homeboy. <laughs> you know, I love to um, the Juggernaut. I was really a big fan of the Juggernaut too. He just I liked his design. He had this egg shaped, you know, helmet on. He had these huge muscles and like you. You like your men big and muscly. Oh hell yeah! And you <laughs> notice my covers. Too. I am a big fan of muscle characters. Um, anything that looks super massive like the impossible like they can't even reach their back because it's just nothing but like muscles you know? 
Derek, how about you? Yeah. I've never thought about it as a crush sort of thing, but I mean, if if uh, if I could magically date any of the X-Men, I suppose maybe Jean and uh, I might say Polaris, although I've heard on a lot of the podcasts that like anybody who likes Polaris, like <laughs> you know, there's all they sorts of They turn out there. gay later. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Unless you're Havoc. It didn't happen for Havoc. Yeah. Uh, what uh what a delight uh to get to know you both better and maria to hear about the the um the detail and thought you put behind your work getting to know the person behind the art is always my favorite thing about this podcast uh and derek getting to know you better in person as well having read your book and i know how brilliant and intricate your mind gets uh so uh just being able to nerd about x-men together is uh is really really fun um i'm excited to hear from both of you as we review today's issue Uh, this is our first claremont issue on the podcast I, uh, I had to consider long and hard as we were going to do this issue specifically, but I wanted again to do a little bit of Jean Grey love. Um, we are going to see, uh, this issue is several years after Claremont's been on the X-Men. The X-Men are a worldwide phenomenon at this point, whereas the 60s books we're reading, they were kind of flailing and not doing great. Uh, Claremont has narrative prose in a way that is very unique to him. He uses a lot of very deep, rich, words. Now, the 60s books are very word dense, but a lot of the words are not necessary. Claremont will write a novel as he's going through. We're not going to do this in the whole book, but I'm just going to do this on page one. So in continuity, if you flash forward to the X-Men in the future, in continuity, Jean Grey has uh, taken the Phoenix Force and has seemingly died at the time. We will much later learn that she's still alive but she's been taken over by this cosmic entity. It's driven her mad and she is believed dead. And we are opening this issue with, uh, with her sister, Sarah Gray, standing at Jean's grave. And I'll ask your thoughts on the art in this. This is a black and white issue. It's, uh, it's pencils and inks is all, and it's beautiful and very simple. The story is very simply called Phoenix. Uh, we see a full page splash of Sarah standing over Jean's grave. And I'm just going to read Claremont's words on this page so you can kind of get an idea about what his prose sounds like. Summer has come to Duchess County. The air is still and warm, laced with the buzz of insects, the trill of songbirds, the heady smell of wildflowers. In the distance, a train whistle echoes across the valley, an Amtrak turbo liner heading downriver for New York. A hushed, lazy serenity has settled over the countryside, bringing with it a rare, wonderful sense of peace. The bells of St. Stephen's Chapel toll the noonday Angelus as Sarah Gray enters the tiny cemetery. This is the oldest part of the college, some graves dating back to the Civil War, others to the Revolution. Today, though, none of those venerable stones have any meaning for her. She has come to visit the newest grave, that of her youngest sister, Jean. It's been a year since Jean died. It still hurts. So in the 60s books, we get a lot of prose that just over explains things. A character's falling down the stairs and they use three word bubbles to say, oh no, I'm falling down the stairs. (laughs) But in this, we get this really depth kind of scene setting. When I read a Claremont book, I have to slow down. I've got to take my time and appreciate the art. Now, John Buscema at this point in his career has been around for a while. He's drawn a lot of Spider-Man. He's worked for other companies. Uh, In fact, his son, John Romita Jr. is going to become pretty famous uh, for being an X-Men artist relatively shortly as well. But his art in this is very, very detailed, very, very simple. Uh, It's really beautiful. Let's talk just briefly uh, about his art just on this first page with Sarah, with her flowers in the graveyard. Uh, Maria, what did you think of the art style here? 
I love the art style, actually. You know, even from back, well, even because you see my ink work, you know, and it's very detailed and all that stuff. But I do appreciate a lot of inking work from back from the past as well, too, because they do something that I can't do, where it's simplistic, but it's so detailed in its own way, you know. And uh, the shading's great. You can see in the back, too, of, like, the page, there's, like, uh, where the statue is. You can see, like, the leaf uh, shadow is on there, too, where, because of the tree right there standing above uh, the sister. Like like I said, they get straight to the point. It's very clean line work, but it's it's just done so nicely. I really did enjoy reading this issue, too. And once again, like I said, being an artist, I'm just studying every little piece. Like, okay, how can I add this into my own artwork as well, too? because um, that's why they're masters because of what they know what to do. But yeah, I love it. I love how certain lights you can see too where they thicken it, so it pops out more. The sister's right there. She's the central piece right there. So they know where to put the characters where your eye has to go as well too. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just the first page alone. It's really, it's a big splash page of itself. Really, it just draws you in right away. It just draws you in. Derek, have you read much Claremont? Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, I think I, I read like 15 of his 17 years. Um, and and yeah, like the words you you read here, one of the things I noticed is, you know, Bashima is doing a great job of setting the scene visually. One of the things I noticed about Claremont's words are it's all about sound and like he's providing the exposition in the way that, that um, you know, the, the artist cannot. And so it really is complimentary in a way that, as you say, the falling down the stairs, oh my God, is is not complimentary. It's it's um it's redundant. So no, I um I appreciate Claremont a lot. And when I was reading comics to my son from the Claremont era compared to the normal, like the now era, he was like, Wow, there's so many words. And I'm like, Yeah, I know, but it's it's the style back then. So yeah, there's a the X-Men get a lot smarter. The characters are treated very densely. Uh, there's a lot of scene setting. Uh, I've, I've been reading books about the the early X-Men writing and uh, John Byrne, who was one of the big artists back then, would be like, oh, my God, you would just write characters sitting in an apartment talking for 22 pages <laughs> like we need action here. But uh, Claremont really cares about his characters and, and what matters to them. Now, at this time in continuity, and I'm going to do it, I, I like to do deep dives. There is a lot of pressure in the comics to bring the original X-Men back. Uh, so the, the, the new team with Wolverine and Storm and Nightcrawler and Colossus and everyone has been running for a while, six years now. And they want to bring the new team back and they're launching the new series X-Factor, which of course gets done. Uh, and instead of bringing Jean back to life, which Claremont was dead set against, even though he didn't want to kill her in the first place, he wanted to bring Sarah, her sister, back instead. Uh, he he wanted to put her in the original team. Now, this issue comes out before that, but we see hints in this issue that Sarah has some latent mutant talents. And Chris Claremont's plan was that her power would be to recognize the latent talents in other mutants and help awaken their powers. Because the X-Factor's mission was to find mutants and train them and rescue them and do these things. Uh, now, ultimately, that didn't happen. Jean does come back in an issue of Fantastic Four and then and then uh, the Fantastic, or excuse me, then X-Factor is launched after. But we see some work with Sarah here that's not really followed up on. Sarah is married. She has two children. We don't see a lot of her family in the comics. Uh, her kids are Joey and Galen. Uh, Joey's called Tommy in this issue once. Her husband's name is Paul Bailey. Uh, in the future, Sarah is going to go missing. 
and eventually be reported dead. It kind of happens off panel. But in Krakoa, I think we could see Sarah and Joey and Galen all resurrected because all of them are dead and they can resurrect mutants now. So I'm hoping someone will pick these characters up. So uh, let's let's walk through this just a little bit. I'll kind of talk us through the first pages. We're seeing Sarah on this first page or this uh, second page kneeling at Jean's grave, wondering whatever happened to her, wondering, uh, you know, your body's not even here. You died on the moon. She's sharing her fears that her own kids might end up being mutants. And then she flashes back a couple of years to a time when she and Jean Grey were spending time together, getting ready to, uh, during when Jean was Phoenix, getting ready to go off on a boat together. Uh, They are flirted with by some men. Jean uses her powers to stand up against the men, knocking them in the water. And then they take a sailboat out on the ocean. Uh, there's there's a cute little relationship between them. They're a little bit playful with each other. Uh, (laughs) uh, Gene says at one point, Pooh, marriage has turned you into an old fuddy-duddy. You have no sense of humor. Uh, They're they're cute together. And uh, Sarah, again, expresses concern that her children may grow up to be mutants. Now, one of the things that stands out to me here as a queer person is we see a lot of parents who are worried that their kids may turn out gay. You can't make your kids straight, even if you're afraid of them being gay. We hear parents say things like, I'm worried about my child having to face extra hardship for being gay or trans. If they're gay or trans, they already are gay or trans. And I kind of wish Gene would say that to Sarah here. Like, if your kids are mutants, they're going to be mutants. There's nothing you can do to change that. It's okay to be afraid, but you can't make them not mutants because it's just going to be that way if it is that way. Uh, so that's uh, that's, that's kind of some, some poetic stuff here. Uh, when they start to face a little bit of trouble, there's a creepy... Uh, <laughs> There's a creepy submarine closing in that douses their ship in gas and knocks them both out. Uh, and they are pulled down in the water. Uh, uh, and we get to see Jean while she's unconscious flash back to her early childhood for the first time. And I'm going to let Derek take over that part of the conversation. But before we do that, and, and this is why I chose this issue, because we get Jean Grey's backstory. We get family relationships, but we also get to see her backstory prior to the X-Men for the first time in this issue, which is why I chose it. Uh, what are some of your thoughts on these first five pages and the relationship between Jean and Sarah here? Or even the parallel between mutant kids and queer kids, I think uh, is a really fascinating part of this issue. Did you want to go first, Maria? Sure, I'll go first. <laughs> well, you know, when, um, well, first of all, one, for the first five uh, pages of this, it's still really beautiful art. <laughs> Uh, he, he does such a great job with this, all the shading and just the right brushwork. Just like I said, quick lines to make the image pop out. And I love the, his movement and his action. Like everything is moving even when it's not, you know, that's why I'm really big fan of that. Uh, I think one of, um, I'm trying to look through this page right now. One, he, I, I like that relationship with him, with Jean and her sister. Like right away, it's like, you can see that Jean already accepts, you know, she's the Phoenix, you know, she's, she accepts who she is, right? That's why she's very carefree. You can see even by their clothing, even by her clothing, like she's more open, her hair's out, like she's wearing her really nice beauty suit. And then if you see her sister, and like I said, the fear of her children being mutants, you can see though, like she's more covered up. She's more concealed. She's even putting like that uh, visor so in a sense, like, I don't know if she's even embarrassed somewhat being by her sister, knowing what she is too, you know, where she doesn't want nobody to notice who she is, um, which I don't think that's it. That's probably going a little too deep into that, right? 
that's probably just the way she dresses but i mean you can (laughs) see it right there too it's just jeans just out there popping because she knows who she is she accepts it and she lives her life right but then you can see her sister where she's more like you know clothed up a little bit more heavier and she just is more like you know a little bit more shy and that's when you point out that she's like oh you know you're you're being a prune you know you know (laughs) you should have some fun you know stop acting you know but then again she's a mom too so once you become like a parent so you're a little bit more like you know on this like i need to protect i need to watch over but um this uh this moment when sarah's talking about her kids too and jean's like uh so you're afraid they're gonna turn out like me are you saying i'm a freak i have experienced that as a queer person over and over i have uh five straight siblings and one gay one and when i when i hear uh my siblings say things like i'm afraid my kid's gonna turn out to be gay i'm like do you realize right. who you're talking to? Like that's offensive, <laughs> no matter how you mean it. And, and, and that really and that sweet. parallel to mutants right. being more that way is always fascinating too. Well, then that's a, that's what I was trying to point. Like I have a sister who's going through the same situation, and it really sucks when they have to bite when you have to bite your tongue. Like you can't like completely, you know, say what you want to say, right? Because you have parents that are conservatives or parents that still don't understand, you know you know we're more of the people that understand that the world is changing and changing it changes good you know sometimes change is really good and you have to change because the world is constantly changing you can't be like oh life was good you know back then and i'm like yeah at a certain point but there was still bad even back then make america great again for (laughs) who who was it for it was horrible you know, and now the fact that, uh, and then that's when we complain of millennials, like we can't even afford a house because you guys did this. <laughs> you know, I'm in debt and all these things. But uh, yeah, I mean, so I like the fact they're having that relationship with sister, sister, because that's how I feel too, because I'm more of the open sister. I'm the one who's just like, woo, woo. And I have my sister who's like, shh, stop talking really loud, calm down, you know, and I, that's why I said with GM. I, I could see where I'm more that flashy lure. It's like, oh, I'm happy who I am. I accept that. I'm weird. I'm wild. You know, you can't change that. And my sister, my middle sister is more of the, well, you know, we got to be normal. Can't be talking too loud. Can't be like, you know, showing off too much, which I'm just like, I'm living my life because it's the last moment of my life. So whatever the case is. <laughs> but I think what I, what really got to me was when uh, her, her best friend died. Oh, well, we're going to save that. Let's, uh, oh my God. Oops. I ruined it. Guys. So sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to get that next. Uh, Derek, before you cover the next five, did you want to comment on anything in the first five? I agree with everything you guys have been saying. And yeah, the, the parallel with, with being gay and, and, you know, or a freak like me sort of like it, it leaps out now. Um, but even as a, even when I read it in the 1980s, you know, it was really clear what was happening. Um, and, and yeah, the, the thing about Jean being less dressed and the sister being more dressed, I mean, that's a Claremontism as well. Like there's a lot of both visual and narrative symbolism in sexual freedom and like being comfortable with your own sexual freedom that, that is very much part of the whole Phoenix saga. And uh, so, so yeah, I I saw that in there and I agree. The art is, is really great. Uh, I don't normally see John Basima as like an X-Men guy because the Basima brothers, I associate them with, you know, uh, the Hulk or defenders or whatever. And, um, and so it's, it's interesting to see a different style here. 
Um, and, and the Klaus Janssen inking reminds me a lot of uh, Miller's Daredevil because he did so much of the inking on Daredevil. And so you, you can see sometimes these little flourishes that I'm like, oh, a Klaus Janssenism, you know? Yeah. So Derek, walk us through the next five pages. We get to see this this flashback to Jean's childhood, which is just stunning and frankly defines her character, changes our full understanding of her as a person. Yeah. So page six, Jean is unconscious and Claremont opens with the line, she's walked hand in hand with the Reaper since childhood, which in one sense we get, but in another sense, he's starting to rewrite her story, as you say, because we know she's resurrected herself as Phoenix. We know that as Marvel Girl and Phoenix, she's gotten through so many near-death experiences that it'll turn any redhead's hair gray. Um, but in that, that moment, Claremont is moving that emer emotional energy much further back. And so what we see is Jean is a 10-year-old. She's playing with her best friend, Annie Richardson. They're both warned, don't go near the blind curve on the road. And then the wind picks up the Frisbee and it carries it to the road. Um, and Annie gets hit by a car and Annie's body is so badly broken. And this is Annie's tragic death scene. And 10 year old Jean is witnessing this, but she's also participating in this death as a regular person. But then the terrible trauma of it also opens up Jean's mutant power of telepathy early. And she's not only a regular person, like not even mature, participating in a death scene. She's inside the death scene in her, her best friend's thoughts as her best friend's dying and i felt terrible for gene um this is the first time she hears people's thoughts this is the first time she's experiencing the death of a loved one and she's doing it with the maturity of a child from within the dying thoughts of a friend um, it's very much it's very much the loss of gene's innocence we yeah. see her just in a two-page arc and i'll let you continue here in a second Derek. Oh, we sure. see her just in a two-page arc uh, her, her, this very close, loving relationship with her parents. Yeah, go play. Her dad calls her, bye, bye, redhead. See you for lunch. And she's happy. And then there's this very tragic death. And there's the, their line, the, like, the driver didn't even see Annie. Um, mm -hmm. We have a long trend in comic books and in X-Men books of trauma unlocks your powers. You go through something rough, whether it be rejection or being bullied or being attacked or, uh, or, or having an even worse trauma inflicted on you. And then your powers activate. Uh, and there's something so sad about that uh, uh, that theme in the X Men books. Uh, it's these are it, again. It's only two pages, but this completely revolutionizes our understanding of Jean. Uh, Maria, let's hear what you had to say about the, the uh, Annie's death before we move on with what happens okay. to Jean. When I can bring it up. <laughs> um, no, well, that's it. Well, first when I read that, because I totally didn't remember Jean's backstory, but when I read it right away. Just a kid of me, I was like, oh, like Pet Cemetery. No. <laughs> oh, those are always the tragic deaths, or the ones that get hit by a car. You're like, oh. <laughs> but uh, no, yeah, it's uh, it's really shocking. And like, and like Derek pointed out, like right away, she's no she's normal. Her powers haven't awakened until something really traumatic like triggers it. And you know, and that's the thing too that that goes with people who have like a a lot of. Uh, uh, mental they're going through like a lot of mental issues something triggers it you know and you really do feel for the, a lot of people who you want to help out and you can't help because you can see even the parents too like once her friend gets hit and right she's see she's feeling her friend slowly pass away because her mind is connected with her friend and that's really traumatic in every single way to so imagine you're holding your friend and the the life is disappearing 
and you can't do nothing about it. You know, you have powers and you still don't know how to use them. And if you knew how to use them, you who knows, you could have probably saved your friend, at, you know, at that time. So I know it's really, and it's your best friend too. That's eating you up like crazy, right? Well, but a 10 year old, a 10 year old kid, even losing a grandparent is a trauma is or to lose trauma. a friend is a trauma, but to live that trauma, trauma. with her as she dies, my God. Right. And you have to figure out how to, you know, deal with the trauma. But even in the page, you're seeing that, you know, she's isolating herself from everybody. She wants to be left alone. She's yeah. still battling it with herself every day. Like no matter how much help they can try to give her, it, I mean, even to this day, I think no matter how much help, if you see something traumatic like that, death, death is so traumatic, yeah. you know, and you see it. That's why when people get, see people get murdered or hurt right in front of them, they'll never be able to really take out that image from their head because yeah. they were the ones to witness it. And that's why so, I said too, it's uh, to imagine that people who go through that, that it triggers them. They start to get anxiety. They start to have panic attacks. They start to, you know, and she's right there just alone, really, truly just alone with her own thoughts. So Derek, tell us what happens to Jean next. So I'll, I'll make also an asterisk comments. I don't have the reference, but it's later revealed that it's this moment that first draws the Phoenix force to notice Jean. And so like, this won't be triggered for a long time, but that's, that's a later thing. So, so as, as uh, Maria said, Jean's behavior changes dramatically. No doctors can help. Um, no one realizes that this is in part because she's hearing everybody else's thoughts and doesn't know how to stop it. And the final doctor says, oh, you know, I have this colleague, Professor Charles Xavier, maybe he can do something. And um, in the next page, we then learn that Jean was actually Xavier's earliest student. And to enable her to cope, he closed off her telepathic abilities until she was mature enough to handle them. Uh, and we then also, we get a bit of a we also get a, I was just gonna say, we get a mention that John Gray, Gene's father, knew Professor X. He says, I want to reach out to an old colleague of mine to come and help Gene, which is something I don't know that we've ever seen really explored ever since then. But that's was a. That, was that her dad saying that or was mm -hmm. it the doctor? Oh, I oh. thought it was, I thought it was her father. No, it's, a, it's, it's the, the doctor. doctor. Oh, it is the doctor. Yeah, Never mind. Oh, you're like, what does the dad know? You're like, what does the dad know that we don't know? <laughs> That's I apologize, Derek. <laughs> I apologize. Keep going. All good. All good. So we, in the next scene, we get a bit of a montage where, you know, we, we get all of the exposition of this is, this is Gene as the superhero. Gene is the student. Gene is, you know, becoming Phoenix and Scott's there. And, and then we get her waking up underwater in an, uh, I dream of Genie outfit. <laughs> um, did you want me to keep going? Yeah. 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 So uh, one of the things I loved about this, like you don't normally get Jean alone in anything, right? And, and, and so you see her alone as the only superhero in this story. And her immediate reaction is, crap, I've been in a lot of terrible situations. I'll be okay. I'll figure out how to deal with this. And like just the, the fact that she's that got that presence of mind I, I was the biggest thing that I took away. Um, she's realizing now that she's breathing water that she's underwater that she's seeing underwater properly and she's dealing with all of this body modification but then she hears her sister screaming and it's her sister has the same modifications but is not dealing with it well um which is hardly surprising well and we can't see this in the color but jean realizes her skin is blue she's mm -hmm. like holy shit i'm blue what the hell happened <laughs> I'm related to Lady Dorna now. <laughs> or Dorma? 
Dorma. Yeah, Dorma. Yeah. 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 Um, and and I, I will say that um, Sarah's outfit is pulled from the rack of clothing that John Basima would put on the women in Conan. So, yeah, people have styles. So these these two women fell in the water, got knocked unconscious, woke up with blue skin and wearing bikinis and skirts. Like someone changed them. Like what a what a goddamn violation. That's ugh. the the villain in this. We'll get to it in a minute. But ugh, that is not okay. Don't do that. <laughs> uh, Derek, did you have any? Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna do that last page if you wanted. Yeah, but, please. Okay, so Phoenix stuns her sister, which I guess is the equivalent of giving somebody a slap when they're panicking, but then does something more gentle and, and mentally healing. And on that that 10th page, there's this line that I really like that is Sarah saying, I felt your thoughts and they were so beautiful. And this is really Sarah's first experience with Jean's powers, like what they're really like. And this is different from how Sarah was reacting when she first met Jean or when she saw Jean moving the sandwiches telekinetically. Um, so that's a nice moment and uh, then guards come in using dialogue ripped straight out of the Silver Age, so much so that I wondered if Claremont was trying to channel the pastiche of 60s lackey dialogue, because Claremont writes really good villains. Um, but this was, <laughs> anyway, the dialogue I think was, was ripped out of old Submariner stories. Um, and, and Jean can't use all of her telepathy, only some of it. Uh, there's some inhibitors around, and we get the reveal that their master wants to meet his brides, which dun, dun, dun. gross. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is an old like a rapey supervillain plot. Uh, Maria, do you want to tell us what happens in the next little while as they meet Atuma? All right. So, well, in this scene right here, you know, Atuma comes on and he says, uh, you know, that technically he wants them to be well he wants to be, breed with them so he gives them a virus he, that's what he put on his sister i believe right mm-hmm. uh, like a, some sort of a virus because he wants to uh, mate with them to make like ultimate like children and like you know have an empire because what's his name namor or yeah namor mm-hmm. yeah namor right because he doesn't like the fact that namor is in control and he wants to be the main ruler of this so you know he's technically which you can see right too like I mean, he's just a creep he's straight up is just a creep he's grabbing Jean's sister grabbing her by the chin and like you know looking at her like presenting like oh yeah you look good on both <laughs> he doesn't you know? even he doesn't even just want to breed he specifically chose them because he detected they were mutants he wants he to have powerful try. mutants so this is where we get that hint that Sarah has some latent mutant power of some right kind. Ooh, creep <laughs> <laughs> But I like him. I mean, it's uh, he's uh, he's that classic villain where you're just like, oh, you just the moment you meet him or hear him, you're like, oh, I hate this guy already. <laughs> <laughs> and you're rooting that they're going to just beat him up. So. <laughs> but I do like that. Right. So then we go from there and then we're and of course, this is where then, you know, Gina is just right away getting pissed off at this, you know, and she's talking about. He's, he, yeah, she 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 says, uh, you may think you just got Marvel Girl, but you got Phoenix, bitch. Right, there you go. This is where it's right. So it's, and that's the unique part. Like you just see her like giving that look, and then I don't know if she just puzz out. <laughs> she turns into Phoenix right away. She attacks um 
Hey, I gotta remember how to pronounce his name. Atuma, right? Atuma, yeah. Right. And like, uh, think of Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's not Atuma. Uh, well, and then she tells you, like, she gives him, like, the right de- She kills him, technically. She gives him, like, the right death. She's like, yeah, this is what he deserves. <laughs> and then, and I find it funny, too, like, with the, uh, oh, no, not yet. Yeah, she's fighting with him. God, I gotta really through this all over again. I mean, he comes at her with a giant sword and it's just not going to do much. Right, because pretty much he's just saying, you know, it's going to be forced upon. You can't do nothing about this. Yeah, they're just going through. But there's a line here that I really liked where she talks about passion. That passion is violence, Mm -hmm. you know. And I thought, you know, that stuck with me when I read that. I was like, oh, that is so very true. But Pat, let me find that line because she says it in a really, really cool way. My understanding is Claremont often uh, uh, saw the manifestation of the Phoenix as Jean taking control of the power of her emotions. And he expands that to such a state where it's almost uncomfortable sometimes, frankly. I mean, she eats a star later, right? Like <laughs> there's, there's moments where uh, where she's overcome uh, but yeah, this this idea of her finding passion uh, as violence, as expressing herself to such a space where uh, she has ultimate control uh, and he can't stand against her. As Atuma shouts at her things like, your corpse I will feed to the sharks and your head I will mount on a lance in the center of my royal bedchamber so that you may observe the consummation of my marriage to your darling sister. Like, I'm going to cut your head off and make you watch me breed with your sister is basically what he's threatening. Uh, this guy's the rapiest, grossest villain so far that we've seen since the warlock, at least. Ugh. Derek, what were your thoughts on these pages uh, with Jean kind of harnessing her power and, and kind of taking control over everything? Uh, I like... So during the Claremont era, like from X-Men 101 to X-Men, let's say 128, Jean's powers go up and down. Like she sometimes has a whole lot of power and can blow a bunch of people away. And sometimes her powers just stop. Um, and and she, it, like you say, she doesn't always have control. And so here it, it feels like she's in more possession. And one of the things like on this conversation of passion that you're talking about, one of the things I like what Claremont does in here is Jean actually says that the Phoenix force amps up both her positive and negative emotions. And that's attached to the power, but then she's got the intellect and maturity of a 24 year old woman to manage those emotions while having essentially infinite power. And, yeah. and so there's, there's going to be like, this is going to progress. And, and by my calculation, this is like around issue 109 or 110 of the X-Men. So it's still early in the Phoenix uh, sort of run, the Phoenix story. Yeah. Uh, Maria, I found the line for you. So Jean that, is... That's what I'm looking for. I was like, what is that Jean, is, <laughs> Jean is tempted to destroy Atuma and her so- and the soldiers. She has the power to do so, but she chooses not to. She collapses the ceiling on them instead. Yes. And as she's floating away with Sarah, who is not doing well, Jean's, Jean's seen things like this happen. Sarah has not. Sarah's in, in full you know, trauma mode. She's thinking to herself, and this is, again, more Claremont dialogue. Water is a thicker medium than air. Objects don't fall as fast. Atuma's army will have plenty of time to escape, and so will we. I almost killed in there. I wanted to. I still want to, and I think I know why. 
The phoenix is a creature of life, of emotion, of passion, but passion is inherently violent and impulsive. It's action without thought. It taps into my emotions, good and bad, and amplifies them at the same time. It gives me the power to fulfill those feelings. So long as my intellect restrains my emotions, I'll be all right. But if I ever lose control, dot, dot, dot. And we already know she's died under the Phoenix Force at this point in the comics. So uh, it's kind of an early, well, belated foreshadowing to uh, to help us understand what happened. Um, as they reach the surface, they're still blue. Uh, uh, Sarah can't breathe oxygen and she is in full panic. And we see Jean... Uh, recognizing that her sister would have to go back to a tomb as scientist to have this uh, changed. And so she fully goes inward. She concentrates, she projects her consciousness into her sister's mind. She expands it until she's in touch with every facet of Sarah's physical being. Uh, and then she modifies a single cell, examines it to ensure that all is well, and then moves on to the next. And she completely rewrites Sarah's DNA or cellular structure in order to cure her from this disease. The Phoenix uh, in turn curing Jean, if I understood it correctly. Now, what we're seeing here is again, Jean can destroy a star. There's a scene, if you guys listen to our flash or our, our time travel episode, when we talked about their future adventures, teenage Jean in the future dies and literally rebuilds her body from like spare atoms. <laughs> So what, what we're seeing here is Jean kind of do the same thing to her sister here. This, this character is extraordinarily, almost impossibly powerful, almost too powerful in my opinion. Uh, but she's doing almost like Scarlet Witch level stuff of rewriting reality in order to save her sister. So uh, who she cares about so much. Um, and this is a relationship we don't really see built on in other comics. Sarah and Jean are very close, clearly. And this is kind of the only spot we ever see it. Uh, Derek, what were you going to say? Well, just on her power, um, I remember that uh, I'd read somewhere that um, Claremont wanted to have to, to demonstrate Jean's power when she became Phoenix. He had wanted to put her up against Thor or the Silver Surfer and Shooter said, no, we don't want to do that. And so that's why she ended up fighting Fire Lord, which is just a different Herald of Galactus, but right. made the same point. Um, and so like, and and she mopped the floor with the Fire Lord. So the thing is that like, she's at that level of power, um, which is, as you say, it's kind of mind blowing. Which has to be balanced by her intellect. If she gives in to the power, it will take her so far. But if she can keep the balance, then she has control. Uh, and we see this really beautifully, uh, really beautifully explored. I think this issue is stunning. I think it tells us so much about Jean as a person. Um, as we kind of resolve the comic, we see Jean playing Professor X. She alters Sarah's memory and takes the trauma away from her, which is a really shitty thing to do to somebody. We've we've commented on this in the podcast over and over how that's just not okay. If you think you're protecting someone, removing something from them is not okay. You're taking away their will at that point. But Jean thinks she's doing it. And then we flash back to Sarah at Jean's grave, reminiscing that when Jean died, that's when she got all of her memories back. Uh, so she's literally thinking out loud that psionic block you put on me until your death. I wish you hadn't done that. Did you think I couldn't handle it? Did you want to spare yourself and me the pain of confirming my fears? I was afraid of mutants. And now I'm put into this situation where I get harmed. 
Uh, so it's it's an interesting thought. She took away Sarah's choice, which is something we see Xavier doing with the students over and over and over again. Um, go go yeah, go ahead, Derek. So I, I so one of the things I've enjoyed about your podcast, Chad, is like you know you guys go over and over like which times that Xavier has just wiped people's memories, and in the Silver Age, it, everybody was very nonchalant about it. And I think Claremont is turning it on its head here because yes, he has Gene erase the memories, but at the same time, this, this Sarah's thoughts afterwards and the sort of, I didn't want that thematically changes it all. Like it turns it on its head and forces the reader to say, okay, there's a conflict between these two values, which is the right one. And, 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 you know, Claremont is, is obviously pushing in one way. And the, the other thing I wanted to say about this is why did Jean do it? Jean in one sense is protecting her sister, but in another, I wonder if it's about trust, right? Because Jean is a mutant and her sister is worried about, you know, maybe her kids are going to be mutants and everything else. And I'm wondering if this hints at, maybe a little bit of shame about being a mutant even after all she's been through and the sort of god level figure she's become so i i found this really complexified the theme the theme of the story uh maria your thoughts on that no that's actually 100 true because well if you read in the, the issue she i feel like in the end like her sister was slowly accepting who she is right and like what's going on because it even states here too where she says you know I don't, that she's not fearing that her children were, or she wasn't afraid that her kids were going to be mutants, but more of what type of mutants they were going to be, right? Yeah, to, to, to read that out loud, the, the final panel in this story is Sarah back at Jean's grave thinking, funny, I don't feel quite so apprehensive anymore. If my children right. are mutants and they turn out to be a fraction of the person you were, I'll be very, very proud. I right. love you, Jean. I miss you. I mean, and that's, uh, and that's the sad part too, that you know, she's, she started to slowly accept like, oh, you know, because of what they went through, you know, underwater. And then she's like, well, you know, maybe it's not so bad being a mutant, right? Maybe uh, because, well, what her sister did. But I thought that was interesting, too, where the fact she's like, well, I can cure you, right? But that goes with the whole X-Men thing, too, where a lot of X-Men are like, well, I don't want to be cured. You know, I like who I am. And it, it really is sad what you pointed out, the fact that Jean's been doing this to a lot of people you know, fixing, fixing them or like mm -hmm. erasing their trauma. And I mean, life is trauma already. You have to deal with it. You know, you just can't keep running away from your problems and, you know, you know, if no, as though nothing happened. So I thought that was pretty sad. We as readers love two things. Well, we love many things, but two things to comment on here. We love seeing our characters go through difficult things and rise above. And speaking as a therapist, which is my day job, we consider people heroes when we can see them go through something awful and then rise above. My mom surviving her divorce, people getting over the death of someone and then rising up and claiming their life again, or frankly, coming out of the closet and rebuilding your life all over again. We find people to be heroic when they go through these types of things. And there's this very simple commentary on trauma that starts in this issue with Gene dead, flashes back to this beautiful relationship we had flashes back again to this indelible trauma that she suffered as a child. Then we go back forward, we see Jean claiming herself, saying, I own me, I'm responsible for me, I can do this with this power. Look at how incredible I am. 
and then resulting in her death again. This is a masterclass in storytelling in a, in a comic book format. It's gorgeous, beautiful work in a bizarre anthology called Bizarre Adventures <laughs> of all places. Um, continuity deep dive really quickly, and then I'll ask your thoughts on this, uh, this transformation. Atuma is a character we see often in the comics. He's mainly a Submariner villain. Uh, he, uh, Atlantis is its own underground kingdom or undersea kingdom that has thousands of years of history. And Atuma is uh, from a rival tribe to Namor's, uh, who has been prophesied to kind of lead the ocean empires. Uh, he's actually a pretty great character when he's handled right here. He's really gross and rapey. Uh, now, Jean will have more future with Atuma later in a series of annuals there uh, when she's part of X Factor. Atuma and uh, there's a whole underwater thing where they get seven Marvel women to be the brides of Set, and they take over their minds and put them in gowns. And we see Jean and I believe Storm and Dagger and She-Hulk and a bunch of characters uh, pulled back underneath. And Atuma's involved in that adventure again. Uh, but I don't see him having much history from the X-Men outside of all of that. Um, let me hear your comments. I think that the really deeply profound thing here is this, this idea about Jean owning her trauma. Let me hear some of your thoughts on that. Unless I covered it all. <laughs> I thought I mean, you did a great job. Yeah, that's pretty much it. I mean, there's, uh, like you said, too, if there's one thing that I like about this issue is that, one, we get more background about Jean, right? But two, you get a really understanding of that. She's been suffering since she was young, you know? And she's been going through that, living through that. You know, if, if it's bad enough that she has to be hearing everybody's thoughts and, you know, having to deal with that every day. She saw her best friend die right in front of her arms. And then even that, too, is a situation of her sister deciding, like, you know, I'll cure you. I'll fix you up, you know, because she doesn't want her to go through the same trouble that she went through. And that's like, but yet you see her owning up that now nah, she's a phoenix, right? She's so powerful. And but to, to believe that she wouldn't give enough, like, support for her sister too like it's gonna be okay you know it's not that bad being mute and i'll help you out but more of it's like no let's fix this already you know let's stop this i don't want you to go as far as i've gone through like that's like can you consider that selfish are you trying to help somebody it comes back to that thing again you know what makes you think that i need help why do i need to be cured right and uh yeah it's too right like i said this was a really good issue you you're like you're all rooting for Jean. You feel sad for Jean. You're rooting again. And they're like, like, oh, damn. <laughs> that really, that gets in the feelings, right? And that's a, that thing, too, in the end, when her sister's like, I, I really wish you didn't erase my memory. You know, if you had just sat there and just talked to, and, you know, talked it out or figured a way to live through it. And like you pointed out, too, trauma, you know, we relate to characters when we see they're going through what we're going through and they figure out how to solve it, Right. Yeah. So that's why the idea of like, oh, let's just erase it. Well, we can't do that. You know, we can't erase the, the trauma we go through. We got to deal with it. Well, no and the only, many... the only way we solve it is by learning to live with it, which doesn't right. make it go away. You still hurt. You just learn I mean, how to own it. Right. Well, that's why people become alcoholics or people, you know, find drugs to it. It numbs the pain, but you can't get rid of it. Right. Yeah. It's still there. You have to figure out a way to deal with it. And that's why her sister you, in the end is just like, why, why did you stop me? And I think she would even had a more better relationship. And Jean too would have had even a bigger relationship with her sister if they both worked out together to like, you know, 
figure out how to live with this, um, how to cope with it, right? But, you know, you just can't get rid of it like that. But it, mm. it's Phoenix, so, I mean, she can do whatever she wants if she wants to. <laughs> Uh, Derek, really did like you have Maria's, any thoughts or commentary there? Yeah, I really like Maria's point in comparing the way she dealt with Sarah as a grown-up and the way she dealt with Annie Richardson as a child. And I wonder if that's showing that maybe Jean didn't learn how to deal with the trauma, right? Like there wasn't right. a way where she got to that maturity. And I think it gets back to, we were talking about Atuma being a rapey villain and stuff. Um, when when we had talked about this like earlier, um, I was like, oh, yeah, sigh, you know, like another one of these, because it's really lazy villain motivation. And I thought, why is Claremont, one of the masters of like deft motivation of all his villains, dealing with Atuma in this way? Because this is really ripped right out of, you know, sensationalist uh, pulps of the 1930s, like Dale Arden having to get married to Ming the Merciless in the 30s. Um, so the thing is, Claremont could have characterized Atuma really well, but he didn't. And I feel that Claremont wasn't even interested in Atuma at all. Atuma was a monster of the week fill-in villain who doesn't need to be credible for the story to be effective. He's there to provide action and an opportunity for Gene to face the true opponent. And the person in that story, in, in this story, is who's the opponent is Sarah. Because what they're really about is do you accept me or don't you, right? And that's what the real conflict is because Sarah is prejudiced against Gene as a mutant. And, you know, we see that in the various things we've talked about. And that's the core question of the story. And it's answered at the end. Sarah has begun to understand um, and accept this. So I think Atuma being a kind of a lame, like a one-dimensional villain in this, I think it's so that it doesn't distract from actually the real conflict, which is between the two sisters, which could, then gets back to the point that, that Maria was making that, you know, if you look at the two sort of sister relationships, maybe Jean didn't grow anyway, or maybe I'm reading too much into it. I don't know. No, I think, I think there's uh, absolute value in that analysis. Uh, the, the bond between the sisters, but also the conflict between them, I think is absolutely a big part of the story. It's Jean versus her emotions, Jean versus Atuma, Jean versus her death. Uh, Jean versus Sarah, uh, and frankly, Jean versus Professor X, kind of all woven together here. It's 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 really it's really gorgeous. Uh, Derek, a moment ago, you had some thoughts you wanted to share. Were those them, or did you have uh, those? Those were them. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I think uh, I think I feel like I just got through a really productive session with a client as we talked about trauma because this is what I do for a living, right? And and where I try to help people end is there's value in expressing your emotional space, but you have to balance it out with no one's living this but me. I have to take responsibility for what's happened, even if it was beyond my control. Jean couldn't help what happened with Annie, but she did get to save Sarah. There's another parallel, right? She lost someone and then saved someone, uh, but then ultimately lost herself. Uh, it's, um, it's a really beautiful work. So the reason I chose to take this dive into this issue, number one, for those of you that are reading with us for the first time through the X-Men comics, they get so much better <laughs> after we get through the 60s. We're reading a lot of nonsense stuff in the 60s, but uh, we get these characters' backstories explored. And for those of you that have been impatient for some gene content, I wanted to give you something delicious, but that also gave us some understanding even of her in the 60s. Uh, retcons always, right? We we place the continuity where it belongs. Um, uh, Marie and Derek, thank you, thank you, thank you for your valuable thoughts and insights into this uh, this gorgeous issue. 
uh, it's really pretty. We'll be posting some images online. As we are wrapping up here, uh, I am a huge fan of both of you, and it's wonderful to get to know you. Thank you for being here um, and spending your time with me. Um, keeping in mind, this issue will come out at the end of April. So anything that you may be able to announce by the end of April, you can include here because it won't go public until then. But uh, as we're wrapping up, where can people find you online or find your work? Uh, Maria, we plugged your website earlier, but uh, feel free to share your Twitter handle, et cetera. And then what do we have to look forward to uh, coming out from you in this next little while? Let's go in the order of Maria and then Derek. Okay, well, um, right, you can find me on my website. You can find me on Facebook too, which is the art of, Mar of Maria Wolf. Uh, you can find me on Twitter and also on Instagram too, uh, The Wolf Maria. Those are mostly where you'll see more of my art than anything. But, um, and I mean, what I'm working on right now is I just finished a cover for Shang-Chi. So that's going to be really cool too. Um, I'm doing a Wolverine one. There you go. If anything, I'm doing an X-Men cover. I'm doing Wolverine. So my dad's waiting for that one too. Uh, that's going to be great. And oh, there are so many projects. I wish I could tell you so much more. But if I say anything... <laughs> <laughs> they'll come after you. let's just say this i'm working on a lot more covers and i'm really grateful for that and i'm doing something i usually don't ever do but i got hired to do it so i'm like okay let's do it <laughs> do we perhaps have some interior work to look forward to from you as well uh hopefully i am doing this one thing is way past overdue so i have no choice but to do it but <laughs> so you will see some interior work and uh and if anybody's interested if i am myself doing a comic book yes i am I'll be working with, uh, if anybody read, is it read uh, By the Horns or Ferocious? I'm unfamiliar. Um, highly recommend it. Great books, too. Uh, uh, it's my buddy, Mark. He's a writer as well, too. He's the one who gave me my first cover uh, job. So it's due to him, too. This is why I'm also in the field of uh, comic book sure. covers. Yeah. So I highly recommend him. But I'm going to be working him with him uh, literally this month. And we're going to start getting on the roll on my comic book that I've been working on for like 15 plus years of my life. <laughs> I think you are just incredible. I look forward to every piece you're putting thank out you. and, uh, and I'll be sharing some of your work uh, online as we do this. Uh, but thank you. I think, I think thank you're you. amazing. Oh, I'm all right, but I truly appreciate it. Thank you. If by all right, you mean really goddamn incredible. Then yes. uh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, Derek, same questions. So I, just to say, uh, I'm also anxious for uh, Maria's work, and I'm following her now on Twitter and Instagram. So I'm, I'll follow I'm you sure back, buddy. <laughs> yeah, I'll see, I'm sure I'll see it there. Um, people can find me generally on Twitter at Derek Kunsken, uh, so D-E-R-E-K-K-U-N-S-K-E-N, -E -E and that's my Twitter handle. Um, the House of Sticks uh, came out as a hardcover, and now next month my publisher is releasing it as a paperback. So that's that's exciting news and um, exclusive reveal just to hear. Nobody has heard about this yet, but um, my publisher wants to put out a collection of my short stories in November-ish. So that'll be out uh, then, which is really cool. So scoop for Chad and uh, Quantum War, the third book in my Quantum Magician series came out in the fall. So if anybody's curious about that, uh, there we go. I can't wait to read. Uh, well, I'll, I'll I'll stick with Quantum Magician first. But uh, having read the first book, uh, Derek, I, I know how much work and craft. Again, you're you've you've got a brilliant mind, man. I'm really excited to read the other two books. 
and I'm excited to see what you have coming out. Thank you for spending this time with us. Um, on Gray Malkin Lane, you can find us on, uh, I keep my own social media private because I've got kiddos, but you can find Gray Malkin PP like podcast on uh, Twitter and Gray Malkin Lane on Instagram. The two of you here are welcome to follow me. I just don't uh, take a uh, friend accepts from strangers. Um, uh, this will be the first time I announce some of this and you guys may not know some of these names, but our next three episodes feature uh, three incredible professionals. Uh, we're doing an interview, interview with Linda Fight, who is the first woman who ever wrote for Marvel uh, uh, back in the 1960s. Uh, we've got an episode coming up with Hussein Rashid and Sarah Century, which is going to be wonderful. And then I get to interview one of my all-time uh, lifelong heroes, uh, Mrs. Anne Vicente, is coming on the podcast, uh, which I am so, so thrilled about. So we've got some exciting Whoa. content coming up in the next few months. Um, we will see you guys back here next time on Grey Malkin Lane. Thank you so much for listening to Gray Malkin Lane. I'm pouring a lot of time, labor, and love into this podcast, and I truly hope you are enjoying it. We're seeking to create a unique space here, and I'm really proud of what we've put out so far and really excited about what we have coming up. Gray Malkin Lane is recorded and edited at a private studio in Salt Lake City, Utah. Music and editing are done by my husband, Michael Bell. Gray Malkin Lane can be found on Twitter at Gray Malkin P, P like podcast, and on Instagram under Gray Malkin Lane. If you're enjoying our work, help us spread the word about this unique podcast. Please leave us a good review wherever you listen and check out our bonus content and fan engagement on Patreon. We'll see you back here next episode on Gray Malkin Lane.